In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Since the days of ancient Greece, a battle between two political forces have been going on in the West, democracy versus tyranny. But what makes a tyrant a tyrant? How has tyranny changed throughout Western history? And what is its connection to masculinity? Well, my guest today has recently published a book that explores these questions. His name is Waller Newell. He's a professor of political science and philosophy at Carleton University in Canada. I've had Waller on the podcast before to discuss his great book, The Code of Man. If you haven't listened to that episode, go check it out. But today on the show, we discuss his latest book, Tyrants, A History of Power, Injustice, and Terror. Waller and I talk about the three types of tyranny that pop up in world history, what we can learn about tyranny and masculinity from the ancient Greeks and Romans, how some tyrants paved the way for liberal democracies, how ISIS is a form of modern tyranny, and what the antidote to tyranny is. This is a fascinating podcast with lots of implications on today's geopolitical environment. After the show, make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash tyranny. All right, Waller Newell, welcome back to the show. Nice to be with you, Brett. Well, so last time we we had you on, we were talking about your books on manhood, the code of man, what is a man. Uh, you got a new book out about the history of tyranny. I'm curious, how does how is this book, the history of tyranny, sort of continue your work about manhood and masculinity throughout the West? Um, yeah, how is that? How is it a continuation of what you've been doing for the past couple of years? Well, I've always stressed that the traditional conception of manliness has quite a bit to do with an interest in public affairs. If if you go back to the classical notion of the kalos kagathos, the gentleman, um, Aristotle, for example, says that prudence, the hallmark of great statesmen, is, is the highest virtue short of philosophical contemplation. And in Cicero's Dream of Scipio, for example, you have this model of a balance of civic virtue and the life of the mind, and that civic virtue is higher than battlefield courage. And this whole notion of a, an interest in public affairs continues throughout the Renaissance with civic humanism. Um, if you think of the American founders, uh, they read classics like Cicero, Polybius, and Sallust in, in college. They emphasized that you must always prefer Cato to Caesar, as Alexander Hamilton said. You, you must always prefer the servant of the republic to the dictator. So these lessons, I think, became very real and, and very formative for uh, the American political tradition as well. And I'd also note, mention the notion of the trimmer, the notion of 
tactical flexibility for a long-term goal in politics. Uh, Churchill, for example, said that Abraham Lincoln was the classic trimmer. So I think that whole notion of an involvement in public affairs as a part of what it means to be a man, but at the same time avoiding extremes and, and trying to plot a kind of moderate course. Gotcha. So your, your new book, uh, The History of Tyranny, it's called Tyranny, um, talks about the history of tyranny. And so I'm curious, uh, how do you define tyranny and why, why write a history of this form of government? Mm-hmm. Well, tyranny is both a form of rule and a kind of psychology. At bottom, tyranny is lawless rule by, by an individual or by a group. It, it treats people as if they were objects for manipulation with no rights of their own and no right to a say in how society is governed. Why did I write it? Well, I would point out that the history of tyranny is also the history of its eventual defeat by free self-governing societies. So it's not a pessimistic account. In a, in a way, it's a hopeful one. You can go all the, way, all the way back to the Greeks, think of their 3,000 tiny city-states uh, versus the huge multinational Persian Empire, the battles of Marathon, Thermopylae, Salamis, this confrontation or struggle between free societies and tyranny has been repeated many times. Think of Waterloo, Dunkirk, the defeat of Hitler, the defeat of the Soviet Empire. So uh, tyranny's always been with us, and we have to be alive to that danger. But at the same time, so far, uh, tyranny has never succeeded in prevailing. And what do you think most modern Western Democrats, right? You know, democracy, people mm-hmm. who live in democracy. What do you think they get wrong about tyranny? I would say to some extent that we're victims of our own success. In other words, because we do live in comparatively peaceful, uh, historically unprecedentedly wealthy societies where the rule of law is the norm, maybe we don't always live up to it, but it is the norm. I think that can lull us into a kind of amnesia whereby we forget that this way of life has been successful mainly in the West. We have a tendency, however, to project it on the rest of the world and to convince ourselves that everybody is that way or is on the verge of becoming that way. I think it's reflected in what is sometimes called the rational actor theory of political behavior which is that people are motivated primarily by material self-interest, and that if you can provide them with material prosperity, their aggressive impulses will fade away. That might work in the West. It took us 400 years to cultivate those values of individualism. But I think history shows that it's at least doubtful that people everywhere in the world are, are motivated solely by a desire for economic prosperity. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that later on because you, you make the case uh, that what we're seeing with uh, Islamist jihad and ISIS, it's, just a, it's mm-hmm. a form of tyranny. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So let's talk about the types of tyranny that you, you argue exist. Uh, the first one you describe in the book is garden variety tyrants. Uh, right. So what are the traits of garden variety tyrants? Well, I would say that uh, this, is, this is at once the oldest form of tyranny and one that is still everywhere around us today. Garden variety tyrants rule an entire society, you might say, as if it were their own private property uh, to exploit for themselves, their families, their cronies. Sometimes this involves immense personal hedonism and luxury. Think of these notorious uh, Roman emperors like Nero, Caligula. It's really something that stretches back from Hiero of Syracuse to the Somozas of Nicaragua or, or Bashar al-Assad today. Who, and by the way, Plato would have instantly recognized Assad uh, as, as this kind of tyrant. Now, these figures can do some good. The Greeks sometimes gave power to tyrants sort of like a shogun, uh, someone more effective than a traditional monarchy at winning wars, improving the city's economy and, and defenses. But, of course, they always had to be on guard because at the end of the day, these people really do treat an entire society as if it were their personal property to exploit. And that was going back to the ancient Greece, the ancient Greeks and kind of exploring the idea of garden variety tyrants, you, there was a great section, one of my favorite sections that, that was in the book, kind of exploring the connection between Greek ideas of masculinity or manliness and politics. And it seemed like there was this, this tension in Greece. So on the one hand, they had this heroic ideal from Homer, where it seemed like the garden variety tyrant was sort of uh, set out as an ideal. He had this chieftain mm-hmm. who had his, his kingdom and he treated his, his kingdom as if it was like the people were like part of his family. But then you had thinkers like Plato and Aristotle who were saying they were trying to put a check on that, that compulsion. So can you talk a little bit about that tension that existed within Greek culture itself about the role of, I mean, tyrants and how masculinity uh, affected it? Yeah, it, it is quite fascinating because in a way... Homer's Achilles was the ideal of Greek manhood, and he was a kind of Bronze Age chieftain, uh, a king in his own right, almost like a Viking chieftain in a way. He would, you know, lead his men into battle personally. But he was also a lesson in the danger of supreme personal ambition uh, and how it can go awry. It's his rage over a perceived insult from his commander-in-chief that sparks the entire Trojan War, uh, and, and, and it's terrible uh, bloodshed. Everything is about him. He, he's a kind of narcissistic figure. Uh, he, he's magnificent, but, but he's flawed. And yet, even when the Greeks themselves sort of left the, you know, went, went beyond their Bronze Age heritage and, and became self-governing city-states, They no longer had Bronze Age hero kings like Achilles, but they still idolized Achilles. So that's the tension, right? That that they were living as free societies where, in fact, an Achilles could never really be part of the Constitution, and yet a lot of young men still looked up to Achilles as this ideal. So Plato's answer is to try and redirect 
Achilles kind of ambition from personal power and glory to the honor that you derive from serving the common good in cooperation with your fellow citizens. And for this, you need a new education in moderation and self-control, something that is very unlike Homer's depiction of heroism. In a certain sense, Plato's Republic is all about how to forestall Achilles from from emerging. Okay. And, and besides, oh, go ahead. I, I should correct myself. I, I, I shouldn't have said, by the way, that, that Achilles' rage sparked the Trojan War. That was because of the abduction of Helen. But it was certainly his rage that prolonged the war because he withdrew in a huff from the fighting. Uh, and, and that made victory for the Greeks uh, take a long time to come. Gotcha. Uh, so, so you had this tension in Greek within Greek culture itself where that is ideal of personal ambition um, at the, you know, with the, the Homeric uh, poems, but then trying to s- control that ambition to serve the greater good, to serve the polis. But besides right. that tension, there was a tension between Greek culture itself and uh, the East or Persia, you know, it's right. people always talk about, Oh yeah, the Greeks, they, they Persian was their enemy. They thought them as sort of weirdos or whatever, but they actually got a lot of inspiration from Persian borrowed a lot of things. So can you talk about the tension between Greek culture itself and Persian culture and how that they combine the two sometimes to create tyrannical governments? Yeah, right. I mean, in the West, you had this tradition going back for quite a long time of small self-governing city-states. In the East, by contrast, you had huge multinational empires, uh, powerful, wealthy, huge standing armies. In a way, it was a form of rational despotism. If you try and if you think of the pharaohs, the Babylonians, Cyrus the Great, these were prosperous, powerful societies. They were well-run. And the Greeks were impressed. They were impressed by the Persian Empire, even though they feared that it was trying to extinguish their freedom. So, you know, basically, when, when Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire, it was as if Achilles had taken over a world state because Achilles was one of those many, admi- excuse me, Alexander was one of those many young men who admired Achilles. And Alexander then used that captured world state to spread the values of Greek culture everywhere. So, so I think um, there was this really important synthesis between, you might say, uh, the the Greek heroic standard of of manliness, but at the same time, they really learned an awful lot from the Persian Empire. And in a a certain sense, they took over the legacy of the Persian world state uh, and Hellenized it. And um, how would you describe, like, the the Persian Empire, I mean, was it a tyranny? Because, I mean, the, the way you describe it is that, yes, they, they conquered people, but then it seemed like the, the leaders would give their subjects a lot of leeway in terms of their religion, how they governed themselves. So what was what, what would you call the dynasty? Is it just despotism? What's going on there? Strictly speaking, from a Greek perspective, you would have to call it a tyranny because there was no form of representative government. The 
Persian king was a master. Uh, the word in Greek, despotes, literally means that he had the power of life and death over every single member of his empire, from the highest lords to the lowest peasant. He could dispose of them as he wished. Yet at the same time, the power of that state, when properly used by people like Cyrus, created road systems, promoted the economy, promoted trade, and Cyrus began the Persian tradition of extraordinary tolerance of religious diversity. Uh, Cyrus famously rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. He encouraged the subject peoples of his empire to retain their religious faith. He made no attempt to interfere and he also encouraged people to rise on their merit. His own elite became multinational. So, in many ways, Cyrus the Great was the paradox of a liberalizing despot. Uh, and by the time the Greeks, you know, encountered his successors, the Persian Empire still had many of those qualities. Yeah, and I think that was an interesting point you made throughout the book is that I think what a lot of modern individuals who live in the West get wrong about tyranny is that a lot of times people prefer tyranny over republicanism because, like, as you said, there's a lot of freedom. Um, they they did things to improve the, the lot of their subjects. Um, and, and so I'm curious, um, when did the idea that tyrants – were completely bad. Like you would never want a tyrant. You would you'd prefer individual government, individual liberty. When did that take hold in uh, in the psyche of the West? That's a that's an interesting question. I I would say that that particular sort of uh, hatred of tyranny is present from very early on. Uh, in in Thucydides, for example, the the story of Harmodius and Aristogiton. Um, and later, people's profoundly mixed feelings about Julius Caesar, some of whom saw him as a tremendous benefactor for the common people of Rome, but others who absolutely loathed and despised him as a tyrant who wanted to crush Roman liberty. The interesting thing about the Greco-Roman heritage is that it had all of these nuanced judgments uh, about tyrannical rule you know there there were there were good and bad varieties or 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 you know uh, uh there, there there were there were more preferable versions less preferable versions so i mean the the romans at bottom had a, a totally uncompromising intolerance for the notion of even a monarchy let alone a tyrant in fact for the romans the word rex king was simply another word for tyrant. That's how fiercely resistant they were to any form of non-Republican authority. And yet even they, I mean, think of how the debate to this day about how we think of Julius Caesar, we, we're still debating this, right? I mean, there, right. Are, there are people who see him as a, as a tremendously beneficial figure and others who just excoriated him as the death of Roman liberty. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, and speaking of the Romans, so how going back to the Romans, how did they go from uh, the you know the Republic, where they just loved individual uh, liberty, 
um, they uh, abhorred kings or any type of monarchy or or a tyrant. How did they transition to an empire that was led by a tyrant? This is one of the most fascinating stories, I think, in political history, right? Really, you can say after the defeat of Carthage, Rome woke up one day and found itself the master of the world. And yet it was still, in effect, a small Greek city-state. It was a self-governing city-state in possession of an empire. And the way that they got around this was, because they had such a fierce aversion to monarchy, they pretended that the emperors, beginning with Augustus, were merely the first citizens in what was supposedly still a free republic, a city-state. So it was a Hellenistic monarchy outwardly garbed in the traditional forms and rituals of a republic. And that was, you can say, sheer genius in a certain way that they managed to contain that contradiction by that kind of constitutional fiction, in, in a sense. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents, to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone if something happens to me? Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. 
Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. So that we just talked about garden variety tyrants, tyranny. Uh, the second class of tyrants you look at are what you call reforming tyrants. Uh, what are their traits and what are some notable examples of reforming tyrants in Western history? Well, I think some of the ones I mentioned, like Alexander, Julius Caesar, Augustus, these are people who want complete power and glory for themselves, but they want it, at least in part, to do good things for their people, right? They build roads, they build sewers, they they beautify their cities, they distribute land to the poor. Uh, And unlike a lot of garden-variety tyrants, these sort of, you know, uh, hedonists like like Nero, uh, they often have a a very strong degree of self-control. They, they, they are able to master their passions for the sake of this long-term goal. And then, if you turn to the modern age, you, you can look at these modern state-building despots, as I call them, uh, who aim to uh, crush the church, centralize authority under the secular state. The Tudors, Louis XVI, Frederick the Great, Peter the Great, Napoleon. I think they all fit into this uh, category. Yeah, and speaking of, I mean, I, I thought was really interesting is that you make the case that these Enlightenment ideals of individual liberty, the consent of the governed, uh, were actually made possible by reforming tyrants like the Tudors and yeah. Henry. Like, so, can you explain how did tyrants make the make pave the way for uh, individual liberty and sort of self governance? Right. It, it's, it's an interesting story. It's full of paradoxes. But you can basically say that Europe followed two paths to modernity, following, I would say, Machiavelli's script. Machiavelli said the state could be ruled effectively either by peoples, meaning republics, or by princes. The goal of either was to maximize the security and well-being of all. 
Now, in England and America, self-government evolved more or less peacefully. Not, not entirely so. There were civil wars. But compared to Europe, more or less peacefully, because by the time the constitutional governments were formed, the values of individualism and commercial self-interest were already very deeply rooted. Now, in Europe, by contrast, the forces opposed to modernity, the aristocracy, the church, remained very much stronger and more formidable, so that their societies had to be modernized from the top down, but with the same ultimate goals in mind. You think of Napoleon. Napoleon exported liberal values through his conquests, self-government, religious toleration, more rights for women, meritocracy. And so by the 19th century, I would say that having taken these two very different paths, Europe and America met in the same place. Gotcha. Uh, and then also you talk about how the top-down um, reforms took place in Russia as well with Frederick the Great and the like. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but they saw, them, they saw themselves as... Uh, creating societies where the individual would be liberated. They, they sincerely saw themselves as wielding power to bring about modern societies in which the lot of the average person would be improved. But did they still want to maintain power? Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. You can't take the tyrant I mean, out of the, the tyrant. They, they were often supremely ambitious people or very militaristic, like, like Frederick the Great. I mean, he spent half his life in the saddle. They, they often wanted to in, enlarge their domains. They wanted bigger countries to modernize, and, and that was a part of the paradox. They, they, they certainly did not believe in democracy or self-government. They might have wanted to help improve the lot of the average person, but they were definitely going to remain in the driver's seat. And I mean, did they, I mean, here's another question I think is important. So is it possible to be, I mean, are these classes of tyrants, are they mutually exclusive or is it possible to have shades of all three? So you can be a oh, reforming tyrant, but still be a garden variety tyrant as well. I think it's possible to have shades of all three. They're not, uh, they're not fixed distinctions. They, they kind of blur into each other on occasion. I mean, I would say, Somebody today, like Vladimir Putin, is a combination of, of all three. I, I, I would describe him as a, as, a, as a kleptocrat and a reformer with a side dish of millenarianism. Okay. Well, let's speak of, speaking of millenarianism, the, the third type of tyrant, the third class is called millenarian tyrants. And you argue that this is actually, this type of tyranny is a modern development. Um, so what sets it apart from the other two types of tyranny, and how did it develop? What I think sets it apart, starting with the Jacobin terror of the French Revolution in 1792, was the attempt to return to what the Jacobins called the year one, uh, a golden age of, of alleged complete equality, no property, no classes, and the individual submerged in the collective of a totalitarian state. In other words, it was an attempt to create utopia on Earth overnight. 
It begins, as I said, with Robespierre. Robespierre thought he was bringing about Jean-Jacques Rousseau's golden age, the state of nature when we all lived in bliss and, and equality. And I think starting here as well is that there's always a group, some race or class, that stands in the way and has to be exterminated so that all mankind can live in bliss forever. For the Jacobins, it was the bourgeoisie and the aristos. For Lenin and Stalin, it was the kulak, or so-called rich peasant. For Hitler, it was the Jews. So I'm arguing that this line of descent runs from the Jacobins to the Bolsheviks, the Nazis, Chairman Mao, the Khmer Rouge, and jihadist groups today like ISIS. So, I mean, that's interesting uh, yeah, that Rousseau was kind of the guy. I mean, did, did Rousseau, like, did he advocate for this sort of thing, like this sort of return? Or did individuals read his work and they were like, you know, we're just going to actually make that happen? I think it's more the latter. A, a, a fair reading of Rousseau probably would, would make you conclude that he didn't intend that sort of outcome. But on the other hand, his rhetoric was very inflammatory, right? Property is theft. Man must be forced to be free. When someone like Robespierre came along, he could cherry pick those inflammatory phrases and convince himself that he was bringing about Jean-Jacques' dream of the state of nature in in the here and now. Gotcha. Um, So part of the the, the millenary tyrant's uh, tactic is to to cleanse the earth, right? Use mass killing to cleanse the earth so they can get back to this, what you call history behind the history. Um, But, you know, garden variety tyrants and reforming tyrants would also kill thousands or hundreds of thousands of people to further their agenda. How does the violence of millenarian um, tyrants differ from, you know, garden variety tyrants and uh, reforming tyrants? It's, it's a fair point. Um, I would first point, I guess, to the sheer scale of the violence. In other words, in a mere year and a half during the Jacobin terror in France, something like a quarter of a million people were killed. Uh, and of course, later on, uh, with full-blown totalitarianism, that became millions and tens of millions of people. The, the methodical slaughter of entire races and classes, what, what is sometimes referred to as the industrialized murder of the Holocaust, I would say this began with the Jacobins too, because the Jacobins did not kill randomly. They liquidated entire groups of people. They began the whole litany of horrors of mass firing squads and pits. They sometimes just opened fire with cannons on people. Uh, It it was really the kickoff to what became all too familiar in, in the 20th century. And I'd also say that it's different from other kinds of tyrannical violence because of this genocidal component. In other words, if you're a member of the designated race or class standing in the way of utopia, you're going to be killed whether you oppose the regime or not, even if you support it. And that's not true of ordinary tyranny, I think. Assad kills people because they threaten his monopoly on power. If you give in, you won't be killed. 
if you were a Jew willing to give in to Hitler, you'd still be killed, just as ISIS will kill you if you are a Christian. So I think, I think that's an important difference. Okay. So, yeah, you make the provocative argument that Islamist jihadism, uh, that with, we're seeing with al-Qaeda, ISIS, etc., get most of its inspiration from Rousseau, Heidegger, and Sartre, and these like, you know, French philosoph- existential philosophers, rather than Islam. Um, you know, Islam is a component of it, but the, the inspiration of what they're doing um, comes from these existential philosophers and Rousseau. So can you explain that uh, a bit, that argument you have? Yeah, um, I'm basically arguing that the notion of an authentic people of destiny, which Heidegger identified with National Socialism, makes a migration from the far right to the far left under neo-Marxist thinkers like Fanon and Sartre, so that the proletariat of classic Marxist theory is now replaced with this notion of the people and the destiny of the people. Now, as to its connection with jihadist ideology, first of all, I'd say that it's pretty well documented, and and I try to show it in the book. Other scholars like Bernard Lewis have made the same sorts of connections. Just to take one example, the intellectual godfather of the Iranian Revolution, Ali Shariati, studied in Paris and was influenced, we know, by Sartre, Fanon, and Heidegger, just like Paul Pop, by the way, uh, at roughly the same time. So uh, I, I think that it's important that um, we understand the extent to which jihadist ideology is really, in my opinion, a totalitarian ideology that is masquerading as a religious movement. And I mean, why is it important that you know, Western democracies understand that jihadism is a strand of millenarian tyranny? I think it's important because we need to bear in mind that Islam traditionally doesn't believe that man can create a perfect society on earth through his own efforts, especially not through secular revolution, any more than do Christianity or Judaism. Shariati said repeatedly he wanted to create a classless society in Iran. That's, that's Marxism. And not only that, but all of these jihadist groups have no interest in the history of their own religion. They simply erase the history of Islam with its centuries-long experience of statecraft uh, and its high culture. So I think it's important to encourage moderate Muslims by signaling that we, non-Muslims, understand that jihadism is a perversion of their true faith, and I think that precisely by refusing to discuss it or name it, we actually allow the perception to grow that Islam is indistinguishable from Islamism. And going, going, bringing the connection back to masculinity, so you know, a common argument that I've read in the past 10 years about why young men are drawn to jihadism 
Uh, and it, 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 usually the, the rational actor theory is thrown out. They don't have money. There's no jobs. The economy's terrible. But you, you argue and you, sh- you point out, and it's true, that most of the people, most of the young men who join jihad, like they come from middle class or well-to-do families. Um, so what's drawing right. these young men to jihadism when they, you know, they, they're middle class, right. they're going to schools, they can have, they enjoy comforts. What's the draw? Right. What's the appeal? Yeah, in many cases, they're already enjoying all of the benefits of Western society. So, so what, what's the problem? Well, I, I think that we have a chronic tendency to underestimate the power of conviction. We still go on believing that somehow if people have more prospects for jobs, if they have more prospects for economic affluence, that the sources of their aggression will melt away. But unfortunately, I think it's possible for people to have a principled conviction that the West is despicable and needs to be brought down. Now, you can say, do they always have that sincere conviction? No, some of them are just nihilists, right? They just enjoy mayhem and violence. But some of them really do have that, uh, that righteous zeal and, and the belief that they are serving a higher cause. And I, I think we just have to realize that even if the vast majority of potential uh, terrorists could be won over by economic progress, there's still going to be a significant rump of people who are motivated by conviction. And so, I mean, what's the best way to approach millinery, millinery and tyrants who are, convic- you know, who are convinced that their cause is righteous? And that is, I'm going I'm to put you on the spot here while you're going to solve this problem right now. Um, <laughs> what's the best <laughs> way to defeat ISIS? Um, you know, in addition to what I said about encouraging moderate Muslims, uh, uh, by the way, something like 50% of American Muslims do not believe that their own leaders are forceful enough in criticizing extremism. But unfortunately, in the case of ISIS, I think it's got to be military defeat in the first instance. And, and here's why. All jihadist movements want to control a state where they can create their utopia. Right? Jihadism is always a two-pronged enterprise. It's bring down the West, but it's also build a truly Muslim state. Now, before ISIS, only the Iranian Revolution had achieved this. And ISIS's allure today has a lot to do with its claim to have established such a theocratic state, the stepping stone to a worldwide caliphate. And I'm afraid that that allure really has to be removed at its source. All right, and that's done militarily. militarily. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, I, I, I don't have the expertise to say how precisely, but because a lot of ISIS's revolutionary elan comes from this claim that this is the stepping stone toward the worldwide caliphate, I, I think until you can sort of shatter that claim that the appeal of it is going to be very hard to eradicate. Okay. So at the end of the book, you argue that one of the antidotes to tyranny is reading the great books. 
So how does reading the Iliad or the City of God or the Prince, how does that prevent tyranny? What I'm trying to say is that people have to have what I call a homeopathic cure for the temptation to tyrannize. In other words, you have to know something about tyranny, both as a form of government and as a psychological category, before you can spot it coming. And that means studying the history of statesmanship, great literature, wherever we can find depictions of the varieties of tyranny, the personality types, and their struggle uh, with the forces of, of freedom. People have to immerse themselves into this in a way they have to enter the imagination of the tyrant to an extent uh, before they're going to spot this danger either abroad or, or, or in, our, in, in our own midst. Okay. And so in, in the book, you, you, get, you provide a great reading list at the very end, sort of a bibliography of uh, books that hit on this topic. Right. Yeah. I, I call them the, the next best books. Uh, we, need, we need the great books, but we also need history to, to, to kind of fill the gap in people's experiences, especially young people. Um, and so I've got, I've got about 300 of what I consider to be really great histories and biographies, some novels uh, about statesmanship and, and tyranny to supplement the great books. Well, Waller, this has been a great conversation. Um, before we go, I mean, is there anywhere people can go to check out more about your work and learn more about your book, Tyranny? Uh, well, the book uh, is available from Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It was just published in the UK and Europe. There may soon be Italian and Portuguese translations. And my website, wallernewell.com. Uh, contains information about all my publications and appearances and pretty much everything I've done. Great. Well, Waller Newell, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure, Brett. Thank you for having me. My guest today was Waller Newell. He's the author of the book, Tyranny. You can find that at amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also, make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash tyranny for more uh, links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this show, I would really appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or recommend us to a friend. It goes a long way. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.